All right. Yay. Did you guys have breakfast? Okay, good. That's really important for young people to have breakfast, I think. Oh, wait. I have to plug this in. David, would you put that in for me on the HDMI? Thanks. All right. So I want to talk to you um, openly and honestly and transparently about some of the issues that you're dealing with that I never had to deal with. Or, well, that's not true because I, I definitely did. But when it comes to identity and sexuality, you guys are being bombarded by the things that are out there in this world, these contemporary identities that are coming in. We have laws now that are out there um, that are really pushing an agenda, that are forcing agenda, even to go against Christian principles. And so you're at an age where you're going to make decisions that are going to affect the rest of your life. And I made those decisions, and I live with the effects of those. And, and um, what I find amazing is that God does offer some hope. He definitely offers options that are outside of some of the choices that we've made. I just want to ask a question. Would you raise your hand if you've been baptized? Anyone in this room? Okay. All right. So the majority. And so I want to respect the fact that you made that decision, you know, to be baptized and you gave your heart to the Lord and, and you wanted to walk with Jesus Christ. And so in honoring that, I want to basically let you know what's out there in this world, but I also want to let you know the power of God to restore, to redeem, and even to hold you because you're living in a world, again, that is saturated by do whatever you want, do whatever feels good, and you're young, you're beautiful, you should be experiencing what's out there in this world. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about what God's way is versus what the world's way is and what are the benefits and what are the, what are the consequences. So before I begin, as they're hooking up the computer, let's have another word of prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for this opportunity and I ask, Lord, that you would send your spirit with us today. And <clears throat> I feel the gravity, Lord, of the experiences that all these young people um, have to make choices about. And I ask, Lord, that you would um, speak to them and that you would use me, Lord, to, um, to show them that your ways are not just right, but they're better than what the world is handing out. Blessing God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yay, it's up. All right. So I want to talk to you about a story. And the story is about a young girl. This little girl loved her dad. Do we have any daddy's girls out there? Any girls out there? Yeah, amen, amen. All right. It might be tough to even admit that, but you know, this little girl, she loved her dad so much, and so when he would come home, he, she was the first one to meet him at the door. She loved her dad so much that she would actually help him when he'd mow the yard. She'd sit on his lap while he was driving the, the lawnmower, and even when he was repairing things around the house, she would hold the tools for him. This little girl loved her dad so much. They went to church every week. She loved to sing the songs. She loved to learn her memory verses. And as she would go to church each and every week, she knew who Jesus was. And as she knew who Jesus was, as she was growing up, one day her father came home and he made this announcement to the family. And he said, I don't want to be a husband or a father anymore. Can you imagine how that crushed this young girl? And what was really difficult is that he moved into the basement of another family that they went to church with. And imagine those kids would come to church each and every week and tell this little girl how much fun they were having with their dad. Imagine how much that crushed that little girl to hear that. So this little girl, she was praying, she was asking God because she believed in God and she believed that God was real. And she was asking God to restore her family. And I had the opportunity, I had the opportunity to talk to this young girl and some amazing things were happening. And I asked her, I said, when was it that you knew that Jesus was real? I said, not just that he loved your family or that he loved your church. I said, when was it that you knew that Jesus loved you individually? 
She said, I knew that Jesus loved me when he answered my prayer and gave me my dad back. Because three years later, her father realized that living out in the world wasn't giving him the excitement that he thought it was. And he came back and he was reconciled to his family, actually married his wife again, this young girl's mother, and so the family was restored. Is that an amazing story? It's a story that we don't hear a lot about. But something happened about three years later. This young girl, she's now in her early teens, and she went to a conference and she made a decision. She took stand with many other young Christian people, and she made a stand about purity, and she decided that she wanted Jesus to write a love story. Now, I think that that's a really interesting thing in the world that we live in today. A lot of times these contemporary issues come into our, our church culture and like to, to give your love life to Jesus? Come on, really? Whose choice is it, right? And so she made this decision because she did love Jesus and she trusted him. And so she was determined that she didn't want to just date, but she was determined that she was going to have a lot of friends. She was going to enjoy life until the Lord brought that one person into her life that she was going to enter into a courtship with. And I don't know if you understand the difference between dating and a courtship. Dating is basically casual. You want to you know, see if this person is interesting or whatever. You go out to dinner. You go and do a fun activity or whatever. But courtship is really entering into an exclusive relationship with somebody of the opposite sex with the intention of whether you're meant to be married or not. So that's a little bit more serious. So this young girl, 13, 14 years old, made that decision. But what happened is once her family was restored... Sorry, I'm a little behind my slides. Once the family was restored, her father had to go in for some routine surgery. And so as her father went into routine surgery, he ended up dying three times on the operating table and eventually he passed away in the recovery room. So now here's a little girl that's lost her father not once, but now twice. And you know, every little girl needs a father that'll bounce her on his knee, that'll tell her that she's a princess, that'll tell her that she's precious and that he'll protect her. And so you can imagine the vulnerability of this young girl as she's living, you know, in the situation where she lost her father and then he came back and now she's lost him again. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 7, I was talking to you last night, I referred to this verse about how if you can't receive love the way that you were meant to receive love, doesn't it make sense that you would be vulnerable to receive love any way you can? And so this is talking about the physical, basically saying that if you've had a full meal, you don't need dessert. But if you're starving, even something bitter will satisfy. Did you know that in Haiti, the children, they have no food at all. The mothers, they don't have anything to provide for their children. So what they do is they take dirt, they mix it with water, they make these cookies, and they, they form them, and then they bake them in an oven, and they give these dirt cookies to their children because they have no food at all. And so even that dirt, even while it has no nutritional value, will still at least settle the hunger that's in these children's stomachs. And so as it is with the body, so it is with the soul. So doesn't it make sense that this little girl would be vulnerable? As I was telling my story a little bit yesterday, and I'll tell a little bit more, is that as I was growing up, I struggled with gender identity issues. At four years old, I thought that I was a girl trapped in a boy's body. I didn't trust God because I didn't trust my dad. Even before I was conscious, I had already detached from my dad for my own protection because my dad was never home. But when he was home, he was abusive, loud, he was angry. And I thought to myself, if that's what masculinity is, no thanks. And so I patterned after my mom. I wanted to be like her. She was there for me. She loved me. She spent time with me. So I wanted to walk like her, talk like her. So then when I went to school, the boys saw my effeminate mannerisms, and they would call me sissy, queer, faggot, little girl. So remember, the one thing that I needed is I needed love. I needed love from my dad. I needed to, to know that masculine love was available to me. I needed that demonstrated. And then when the boys rejected me and some of the girls that called me names, what that did is it pushed masculinity even further away, which only set me further on the journey into femininity. 
Because what I needed is I needed to know that I was okay as I was. And so one of the things that I tell young people is that there are many ways to be a boy and there are many ways to be a girl. God only made two kinds in Genesis chapter 1. And he said there are many ways to be a boy. So it doesn't make you less of a boy if you don't like to play sports. It make you less of a boy if you like to cook in the kitchen or if you like to play an instrument. I don't think so. But the message that I got is that I was inadequate as I was. I was short. I was small. Wasn't that athletic. And so, again, I just felt inadequate, which only pushed me into thinking, well, if I'm not accepted in this gender, maybe in another gender I'd be okay. There are many ways to be a girl. Does it make you less of a girl if you like short hair and do you like to climb trees and play sports? Absolutely not. Why? Because there are many ways to be a girl. And so this little girl, she's lost her father not once but twice. You can imagine the ache that was in her heart, as many of you also. The statistics are just as high in the church of divorce, about 50%. And so many of you have come from divorce, single families, maybe adoption, foster care. I don't know. But your stories are much more increased than they've ever been before in our world. They say that now that there are more single mothers raising families, that that, that can never be reversed. So what that means is that we have more broken families, like the family that I came from. So as this little girl was growing up, she you know, went to college. She was a smart girl. She was a pretty girl. She was about five foot one, not very tall. But she uh, ended up going to college, getting a double degree in business and accounting. And so she was determined, again, that she wanted to hold on to her commitment to let Jesus write her love story. So as she's asking God to write her love story, she's hanging out. She went five years to university. And in that time, there was one guy. They decided that they were going to do a courtship, and within just a month, they realized, you know what, we were meant to be friends. Let's just be friends. She'd hang out with her friends. They went to uh, the Grand Canyon together, about 10 of her friends, so it wasn't like she was without friendships, but a lot of her friends were starting to connect. They were starting to get married. She was going to baby showers or wedding showers, and this was her life. Now she's graduated. She's working in a small town, in a small church that doesn't have a lot of young people in it, and of course, the question would be on her mind. Does Jesus have someone in store for me? Lord, do you have someone for me? I've dedicated my love life to you. What's going on, right? So I want to segue just a little bit, and I want to talk about Desire of Ages, something that I read many years ago. And as I came into church culture at 40 years old, living 20 years in the gay culture, and you know what was interesting is at 20 years old, when I went into the gay culture and turned my back on God, I still thought that I had to have a sex change for God to love me. I thought that I had to have a sex change so that my attractions to the same sex would be okay with God. But then when I turned 20 years old and turned all of that away and went into the gay culture, I found that masculinity was much more valuable than femininity. So if I butch it up a little bit, if I'd work out in the gym, I found that I got all the attention from men that I wanted. But what that did is it swung on the other way and made me a sexual addict within just the first few months of coming out into the gay culture living that way for 20 years. I had unprotected sex with men that would be dead three months later from AIDS, and yet that wasn't enough to stop my illicit behavior. Every encounter was just the drive for more, and that's how I lived for 20 years. During that time, I would think about God, I would think about my future, and I would think to myself, <laughs> there's no way God would ever want me back. There's no way that God would ever take me, especially the life that I lived. I remember being 17 years old. Anyone 17 here? I was 17 years old, and I was praying. I said, Lord, just take my life. I was such a coward, I didn't even have the strength to take my own life, but I didn't want to live anymore. I didn't want to live with these thoughts and these feelings that, I was, that were raging inside my head, thinking that this was going to be my future. I knew what was knocking on my door, and yet I thought that God was indifferent or that I didn't matter to him because he didn't answer that prayer. But I'm really grateful that he didn't answer that prayer because now at 40 years old, he gave me another opportunity to come back into a relationship with him. Amen. But now I'd made a lot of choices. I'm 40 years old. 
I'd given up the opportunity to have a family, to have children. But what I find amazing is that God started this journey with me. And when I came up out of that water when I was baptized at 40 years old, I didn't come up straight, ready to date, mate, or procreate. And as I was beginning this very messy journey with Jesus Christ, there were a lot of questions inside my head. And so God had to answer those questions legitimately, honestly, and authentically. And I think that you deserve the same right to be able to ask the questions that are burning on your heart as well. Because it makes sense that at your age, there's a lot of things that are pouring in. And how are we going to sort this out? And does God really have the answer for us? And so in Desire of Ages, that was a book that really helped me. I was so used to pornography and, and, and sexual sin that I went right for the woman that was caught in adultery. And I thought, this ought to be juicy. And when I looked up that story in Desire of Ages, instead of finding the, the, um, the filth that I was looking for, instead I found a compassionate Savior that didn't condemn her. And that he loved her. And he said, your behavior is hurting yourself and it's hurting other people. And so I didn't relate to the uh, guys in the Bible. I related to the bad girls. And so I turned to the woman that was at the well with Jesus Christ. And she was married five times. And the man she was living with wasn't even her husband. And I thought to myself, wow, what a contemporary theme. You know, we have that in our society all over. And so as I looked up the story again, looking for something to stimulate me, instead what I found was a compassionate Savior that told her the truth about her entire life. And yet he didn't condemn her. And he compelled her. And she left our Savior thirsty at the well and ran off to tell everyone that she'd found the Savior. And that was when I read that book from cover to cover. And that was when I really understood more of who Jesus was in my early journey. And so it's been 23 years since I've been baptized. And it hasn't been easy, and it hasn't been perfect. But the one thing that I find is that Jesus is more faithful to me than I've ever been to him. And he compels me. He doesn't force me, and he doesn't chastise me. And even in his rebukes, they're gentle because he understands everything that I've been through. He understands my journey. He's the one that understands everything that that little four-year-old boy was thinking. And so there's an interesting story here. When Jesus turned the water into wine, it says, Beside the doorway stood six large stone water jars. Jesus bid the servants to fill these with water, and it was done. Then as the wine was wanted for immediate use, he said, Draw it out, give it to the governor of the feast. But instead of the water with which the vessels had been filled, there flowed forth wine. Neither the ruler of the feast nor the guests were generally aware that the supply of wine had failed. All right, so are you following me so far? It's interesting. So as I'm reading the story, they needed wine. So they turned the water into wine. But before they served it, Jesus said, give it to the governor, the head person of the feast, and make sure that he likes it. But this was his response. He said, upon tasting that which the servants brought, the ruler found it superior to anything that he'd ever drunk before. Not even from the wedding feast, but even before. He said, turning to the bridegroom, he said, every man at the beginning sets forth the good wine first, but you've saved the good wine until last. And this is the principle that I really started to, to realize from Desire of Ages. Ellen White says that as men set forth the best wine first, then afterwards that which is worse, so does the world with its gifts. That which it offers may please the eye and fascinate the senses, but it proves to be unsatisfying. The wine turns to bitterness, the gaiety to gloom. That which was begun with songs and mirth ends in weariness and disgust. I was a student at Andrews University, and I remember even that long ago, long before even maybe some of your parents were born, there were people that were struggling also. There were people that were starting to drink alcohol. There were people that were starting to go out to the bars and to dance the night away. And you know what? It's a lot of fun. The world has a lot of fun to offer. But you know what? As I went into the, to the gay culture, I was doing the same thing, thinking this is my choice. I have every right to do what I want. This is my new celebration. This is my new freedom. But you know what? It was a lot of fun at first. But then all of a sudden, my friends started to die of AIDS. All of a sudden, my friends started to end up with sexually transmitted diseases. 
Uh, there was a lot of emotional problems. There were people that were committing suicide. There were people that were being shot at, at the gay bar that I went to. And so there were a lot of things that started off as a lot of fun, but then they started to change. But by now, I'd already found myself in alcoholic addiction as well as sexual addiction, and I didn't think that there was any way out. We have these idols and addictions that I didn't have back when I was a kid, but you do. I have a relative in my family, and he's been addicted to gaming since he was 16 years old when his mother gave him a PSP. He was looking at it until 2 o'clock in the morning. He couldn't even enjoy family worship. His attitude became pretty sour. As he grew up as an adult, he spends all of his money and his time in these artificial uh, worlds, and so he doesn't even date, doesn't even have the opportunity to engage in other relationships because, again, this has consumed his time. We have violent video games. We have mass murders that are going on now because of people's addictions to these violent video games. Pornography, chat rooms, dating sites. There was a, in, near where, um, where I lived, there were two little girls. Neither one of them had a father in the home. One was being raised by her mother. The other was being raised by her grandmother. And so they were desperate for a father's love. And so they took the, the uh, tablets from their school where they were supposed to get their homework assignments and they created a name, and they went into dating sites looking for men, all again because they wanted to be called a princess. They wanted to be cherished and protected. And so this is what we have now. We had drugs, a lot of drug use to basically anesthetize the pain, the unsatisfaction of what the world has been giving to us. But I want to explain that a little bit more. I just don't expect you to understand that. Some of the statistics that you're dealing with is by the age of 15, raise your hand if you're 15 or older. 15 or older? Okay. By the, time, uh, by the age of 15, only 13% of teens have ever had sex. However, by the time they reach 19, 7 out of 10 teenagers have engaged in sexual intercourse. Among Christian students, it is not considered sex to engage in oral sex. But according to the world, you can do whatever you want. Single parenting. All because we've stepped out of the fence. God created a fence. And he said that sex was to be experienced between one man and one woman. And if your parents told you that it doesn't feel good, they got something wrong. Because the truth is, is that God designed it to be a very special, a beautiful thing that does feel good. There's a lot of hormones that happen. And so what happens is there's this hormone called dopamine that's released in the back of the brain when you have a sexual release. And God designed that to be with your partner of the opposite sex in a committed relationship where there's no other lovers involved. Because what happens is there's an explosion that when you have the sexual release, when the dopamine is released, it takes a picture of whatever you're looking at or whatever you're holding at that time. And God designed for you to be able to touch and to feel that individual and that person in a committed relationship where there's no shame, where there's no fear. Fear of rejection, fear of being ditched or dumped. But rather in that relationship, as your mind takes a picture while that dopamine is being released, it says, wow, this was really powerful. Let's do that again because you know what? Parents are going to need that when the kids start coming along and the financial troubles start coming along. And God designed it to be a beautiful thing. Now, a fence does a couple of things. A fence will actually keep a small child in and away from the creek that's nearby so that they don't drown. But a fence will also keep a vicious dog from coming into your yard and attacking your family. And so a lot of us, we feel restricted sometimes by a fence. But do we really understand what the nature of the fence is? And that's really what I want to address today. We have single parenting. We have abortion. Did you know that over 65 million babies have been aborted since the 1970s? And I don't understand, you know, or I don't know what your position is on abortion, but I remember my sister ended up uh, pregnant out of wedlock. She'd already had a baby. She had divorced her husband. She was going to nursing school. And I said, get an abortion. You don't need another mouth to feed. And I'm so glad 
that my sister didn't get that abortion. Because my beautiful niece is now 27 years old. She has a beautiful baby of her own. When she got married a couple of years ago, they have a beautiful family. And I can't imagine what my life would be without that precious girl. But even understanding God's principles about life, I thought that I was enlightened. I thought that I was the intelligent one. I thought that I was telling my sister some good advice. I praise God that she didn't listen to me back then. So this is what's going on in our world today. We've aborted an entire generation that could be there to help us not only financially in this world that we live in, but imagine the lives that that Jesus knew in Jeremiah even before the earth was formed that never had an opportunity to even breathe. Adolescents now have the highest rates of HIV infection. Uh, Average of two people are infected every hour of every day. According to the CDC, which is the Center for Disease Control, 40 to 80,000 new cases of HIV infection are reported every year in the United States. Many teens think that if they have oral sex but not sexual intercourse, that they can't catch an STD. That's a sexually transmitted disease. But did you know that every day in America, 10,000 teenagers catch a sexually transmitted disease? You know, it's interesting. It's the devil that entices us to come outside of that fence. And then when we step outside of the fence, the devil is the first one to expose us. Isn't that interesting? We are created like three strands of the rope. Not only the Bible, but Spirit of Prophecy talks about how we are three strands in this rope. We're physical, spiritual, and mental. And you cannot do anything sexual without incorporating all three strands of this rope. I thought that when I was looking at pornography and indulging in masturbation, I thought that that was my own business. I didn't think that it hurt anybody, but I didn't understand the true effects of that because every time you're engaging in a sexual act, you're basically including not only the spirit, but as well as the mental. So the devil knows how strong these impulses are. The devil knows the power of that dopamine release that's in the back of your brain. And so every time that you indulge these practices, you're allowing the, the devil to destroy not only your mind and your character, but also to destroy the precious relationship that each one of us has with our creator and our redeemer. So I didn't understand that until I started to read Spirit of Prophecy a little bit more. We'll just pass Dr. Curry. We have teenage pregnancy now. Teenage pregnancy is definitely a huge thing now. Back when I was in high school, I sat next to a girl in 10th grade, and she was pregnant, and she delivered about two weeks after school. And you know what? That was really something odd in my school. But now it's in public school. It's not a big deal. I was talking to a nurse that worked near one of our big universities and one of our academies, and she said she worked in women's health, and she said the largest users of the abortion clinic is the Adventist University and the Adventist Academy. It's a shocking reality that our young girls have to hide their sin by committing another sin. And this is what's going on in our world today. I want to tell you realistically that sex is like super glue. Do you guys still have super glue around? Do you guys know what super glue is used for? Okay. All right, cool. All right, so if I take super glue, and if I put super glue on this, on this clicker, if I put the super glue on this piano, will it work? Yes, it will. It will. It worked. That's what it was designed to do. That was using it in a good way. But if I take super glue and if I put it on my finger, and if I put it on somebody else's finger, will the super glue work? Absolutely, because you know what? Super glue works whether you use it the right way or the wrong way. And did you know that the Bible says that sex does the same thing? In Genesis chapter 2, it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and he shall cleave unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. So when a man and a woman come together in God's design and they have a sexual relationship, bam, they become one flesh. And that's the way that it was designed to be. Because remember, we were created in the image of God. 
And the image of God was created in each one of us. And so God is a life giver. So when a man and a woman come together and they have a sexual relationship, they are life givers too. So when a father looks into his baby's face and he says, wow, she's got my eyes. And when a mother looks into her baby's face and says, wow, he's got my lips. We know the power of what it's like to be a life giver. And so the devil, you know, he came to steal, kill, and destroy, and he hates Jesus, and he wants to be God. And so imagine how upset he was when God bypassed the angels and gave the gift of creation to man. So we know that sex is definitely going to be under attack because the devil wants to destroy this precious image, image that has been created in each one of us. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, what? Don't you know that when you have sex with a prostitute, two become one flesh? And so sex works whether you use it the right way or the wrong way. The superglue is there. So when you have that dopamine release, whatever you're looking at is the one thing that's going to bond you, whether that's your phone, piece of paper, an image on a screen. But you were designed to experience intimacy so much better than that. And how sad that for all those years that I was addicted to pornography, all those years, fantasy and masturbation, beginning at 13 years old, I was cheating myself out of the precious gift of what God wanted me to experience in, a, in, a, in an authentic and in a beautiful way that doesn't give me damage, mental damage, but doesn't help me to objectify people to be used for my own advantage, but rather to appreciate and to enjoy what true intimacy was meant to be. Each one of us has purity. You were born with it. It's yours. You have the right to do whatever you want with it. God has given each one of that, us that purity. And unfortunately, according to the statistics, many of us in this room are already addicted. Many of you in this room have already either been abused or had something taken from you, or maybe you gave it up willingly. But you know what? Your purity is something precious. And once it's gone, it's gone. And so your purity was designed to be given in a relationship. And the way that God designed it to be is that, that if I've held on to my purity and I find my beloved, I give her this heart. This heart is beautiful. It's like this precious stone. There's no fingerprints on it. There's no scratches. There's no chips. There's no dings. And so when I give this to my beloved, she engraves her name right across my heart. She doesn't know that I'm a lousy kisser because we've never kissed. I've never kissed anybody else. And she and I get to teach each other how to be perfect lovers together because there's no history. She doesn't have to compare herself to my other lovers and my other conquests because she knows she's the only one because it's her name that's on my heart. And if she's done it the same way, she hands me her heart and I engrave my name across her heart as well. That was the way that God designed the superglue to work. But according to the world, the world says, hey, you're beautiful, you're young, you're good looking, you're smart, you're intelligent. You should taste and see everything's out there. You know, you should test drive the car before you purchase it. And so what we do is every time you hook up sexually with somebody, whether it's heavy kissing or heavy petting or oral or whatever you're engaging in, what's happening is you're allowing somebody to engrave their name on your heart and it never goes away. So then when you finally find your beloved, the one that you want to be with for the rest of your life, you give them this heart and you say, hey, I hope you can find a place you can scratch your name in. Do you see what the world has deceived you from? Do you see what the world wants to take from you? And so God's way, it, it isn't just the right way. It's got to be better than what the world is handing out. Otherwise, why would it be beneficial for us? And I just want to talk openly about the dangers of what are out there so that you can make an intelligent decision because I wish somebody would have told me openly exactly what I was heading for because maybe I could have made, it, made other decisions that would have been better for me. Can I have 15? Okay. I want to share with you the story of Anne. Um, I think it was her name. Yeah, Annie. And there's three things that I want you to notice. Number one, I want you to notice the relationship that she had with her father. 
All right? The second thing I want you to notice is I want you to notice the relationship that she has with this guy that stole her heart, that stole her virginity. And then the third thing that I want you to, to remember is what Jesus says about Annie at the end of this video. All right? Little girl lost. Thought no one loved her. Thought no one wanted her. Ran away from her castle. She was embraced by the devil and his false love. And through that embracing became a different person, became the harlot, became the queen of lies, the Jezebel. That's my life. Growing up, I just remember my dad just raging. I'd come home and my dad would be really angry, stressed out. And I really took it personal. And I think that I thought to myself that I must be unlovable. High school, noticed that the boys were paying attention to me. And since I wasn't getting any attention from my dad, I gravitated toward any compliment, any pass that was made at me. I met this boy in school that stole my heart. He told me if I slept with him, we'd get married, we'd make a life together, we'd have babies. And I completely took my entire heart and gave it to this boy. And when I found out that he was sleeping with several of my best girlfriends, it was such a shock to me. Left high school, heartbroken, moved out of my parents' home. The day after I graduated, I remember waving at my mom when I was 18 and my dad and in the back of the car knowing I'd never come back because I was done. I got out into the beautiful city of Minneapolis, tried to find a way to go to college, but I had to work three jobs to have my own place and buy a car. And I, I found like a new thing inside of me that if I had nice clothes, if I went out to the clubs, I could meet different men that liked me, and maybe I could meet a rich guy that would sweep me off my feet and take care of me like a, like a prince would. And so my girlfriend and I started going out to the nightclubs, and we had a fake ID. And one night we walked in. These men walked up to us at the bar and bought us drinks, Rolex watches, designer clothes. I looked at my girlfriend. These guys have money. My girlfriend starts to like one of the men. I told my girlfriend, get that guy's money. And I think what this really was building inside me was this vendetta, this deep-seated, rooted unforgiveness towards my dad, towards that boy in school. And I just wanted revenge. I was going to prove that I could make it in my life. And money was going to be the answer. My girlfriend takes off with this guy, goes to Hawaii, 
I'm working my three jobs. She calls me up and says, listen, I am on the beach. I'm in a drop-top Corvette, and I'm on my cell phone, and you need to come out here. And even though I didn't have the guts to ask her, you know, what, what are you doing? I just kind of went with it. It was like an automatic walking into a dark doorway that I knew something wasn't right. But the lure of the possibility of having nice things and have, finally having money that I never had growing up, finally being someone important, overrode all those feelings of any caution and it blew it to the wind. And I went to Hawaii that very week, took a vacation from my jobs. And the first night that I was on Waikiki Beach, I actually sold myself with my girlfriend to some Japanese clients and I became a prostitute. It's kind of like I had this ring that I put on and I couldn't take it off. No longer could $3.47 an hour cut it. Once I found out that I could make hundreds if not thousands of dollars selling myself $500 an hour with no attachment, no relationship, $1,000 an hour. Now it was $2,000 an hour. It gave me this immense power. And if you wanted me for the night, that was $10,000. A few months later, I started dancing, and one day I was on the stage, and this man walks in, puts this couple hundred dollar fan of money at my feet, and I danced just for him. And I let him know that I was actually prostituting my body. I was actually selling myself to make extra ends meet. He looked at me and said, you are so intelligent. I really like you. In fact, I think I'm falling in love with you. He gave me everything that I needed to hear from my dad. <laughs> and I decided that I wanted to move to Las Vegas. I got off the plane, and that night I went on a couple calls. I brought home a nice wad of money. My boyfriend was there, and he told me to break myself. What did you say to me? He said, break yourself. And that means give me all your money, dump your purse out on my lap. And I wasn't having it. And he proceeded to take me out by my hair. He choked me. He threw me on the porch, on my knees, and he started kicking me. This is pimping B. I'm just choking on my own blood. You're going to work for me, punching me in my face. Time it is, but what time it is now is you're going to pay me. My nose broke, my ribs broke. It was like I was looking at the devil. The prince turned dark. And if you try to leave, I'll kill you. That night, it's like I died inside. And the next five years of my life, I was with a pimp. Every time he hit me and choked me and raped me or put guns to my head, made me do things I never wanted to do, I just did it because I loved him and because out of fear, because I knew if I didn't, that I would not live to see another day. And even though I got away from him, Everything you give, you leave. The money, the cars, the houses, all behind. Because when you leave a pimp, you leave with nothing. 
I started stacking my money again, but the money wasn't the same. I came down with cancer, and a couple years later, lost all my hair, had chemotherapy, had Hodgkin's lymphoma. I started taking painkillers for my bone pain and my marrow, and I got addicted to painkillers, and that led into cocaine. I was going on calls bald with wigs because I had lost all my hair from chemotherapy. And I had clients calling me a cancer, a cancer bee. I'm staying in these seedy motels and I remember laying there in my bed looking in the mirror at myself. Thinking that God was angry with me. I would get in the shower and I would scrub my body and I would think I'll never ever be clean. I started freebasing cocaine and one night I just decided that I was just going to get higher than I could than I've ever been before because I just wanted to erase all the pain, the pain of the cancer, the pain of my uncle, my sister and my grandpa dying within three months of each other, the pain of losing all those years with my family up in the Midwest, the pain of losing all my friends, losing my cars, losing everything I had ever made. I took the hit of that Coke and I fell back. I, I went completely blind. It's like the whole room, the light that was on in that room turned dark. And I remember laying there and I felt like this demonic presence just come over me that I was completely alone and I got really, really scared and I just instinctively knew, I knew that I was at death's door. I was in this dark, dark cave and I knew I knew it was over. And I saw my family. I saw my funeral. And I was in the coffin. And everybody was crying and they were wiping their faces and they were saying, she was just a prostitute. That's what I said, Jesus. I don't know if you're real, but I don't want to die. The ambulance came, and the doctor came up to me, and he grabbed my hand. And he said, you are lucky to be alive. You have so much drugs in your system, little lady. You should be dead. God must be with you. And I knew that Jesus heard my prayer. And I laid there. And I had this peace come over me that was nothing like I'd ever felt in my entire life. And I knew God gave me a second chance. It got better and I started reading my Bible. I recovered and was afraid to go to church. Come on, I'm an ex-prostitute. Do I think if I walk in church, people are going to look at me? and really love me, but I walked in that church and people embraced me. And God just really started doing that inner healing and the Holy Spirit was just like 
speaking to me, telling me that I was beautiful and that I was chosen and that I was set apart and that I was a sanctified and I was a holy vessel for Him. I started to stand on Jesus' words that I'm whole, that I'm healed, that I'm pure, that I'm a virgin in Him. And that gives me peace. I remember I was vacuuming my house one day and the Lord said to me, He said, Annie, I want you to go back down to that strip and I want you to tell the girls that are in slavery that I love them. And so that's what I'm called to do, to simply tell them, God loves you. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how deep, how dirty you feel, that there's redemption. You are white as snow when you accept Him into your heart. Little girl lost, thought no one loved her, thought no one wanted her, ran away from her castle. God met her on that dark road. He said, you can come home now. I'm right here, and I never left you. Redemption, redeemed, set free. That's my life, as love. Pretty powerful story, wouldn't you say? Do you remember what, her, what she said about her dad? That he was always angry, he was always raging. What did she think she was? Do you remember? She said, I must be unlovable. And so it's interesting because that's a message that she got from a, from a parent that was loud and angry all the time. It wasn't a message necessarily that he said, it, and it certainly wasn't true, but the message that she got was that she was unlovable. So then she hooks up, hooks up with this guy. This guy manipulates her and basically takes away her virginity and says, you know, if you have sex with me, we'll get married and have babies. And then she finds out that he's being unfaithful and sleeping with her friends. Didn't they step outside of that fence? Didn't they both step outside of that boundary? But she had some real legitimate needs. She needed to be loved. She wanted to be loved and affirmed. And so she gave away this precious gift. And so look how it eventually led for being in prostitution, she hooked up with this guy that said all of the things that she needed to hear from her dad. Do you remember that? He said everything that I needed to hear from my dad, but he turned out to be her pimp. It's a pretty tough situation. This is what's going out in the world. And you know what? Annie and my story are dime a dozen. But you have the opportunity to make decisions that are going to affect the rest of your life. Where you can be the husband or the wife that you want to be. And that you can have the family that you want to have. And so do you remember what God said to Annie afterwards, after she'd lived a life of prostitution, had the cancer, going on all these calls, been with everybody. Hopefully nobody in this room has been through what Annie has been through, but yet still when she claims the blood of Jesus, she's as white as snow. And you know what? Coming back into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you know, life isn't 
what I thought it would be. I thought I would be married and having children as soon as I gave my heart to the Lord. But I've been in this difficult process of learning to surrender the thoughts and the feelings, the history and the memory of everything that I built up in those 20 years. And you know what? It's still better than anything I experienced back in that world. And that I claim, I claim the words of Jesus that in Christ, I'm a new creature. That in Christ, I'm as white as snow. There will never be safe sex until you can invent a condom for the heart. It's not just what sex does to our physical bodies, but it's also what it does to our minds as well as to our spiritual heart. So do you want to hear a little bit more about that story about the young girl? Remember, right? Anyone remember? All right, thank you. One person. All right, thank you. Maybe two. So this young girl, she's living in this little small town. She's got her degree. She's working. She's wondering, hey, God, do you have anyone for me? I gave you my my love life at 13 years old. So all of a sudden, she was on Facebook, and this young man approached her that she'd gone to high or to college with and said, hey, remember me? They started talking. They realized that they had some interest there, and so he actually approached her mother and asked for permission to court her daughter. She gave it. So every couple of months, he would come up from the state that he was living in, long-distance relationship. They fell in love. They got engaged, and they got married. But I want to tell you something that was really significant for me, because on the day that they got married, you know, of course, you would be wondering, I guess, in your mind, who did God bring for this young girl? But the Lord brought a person that was six foot seven. Can you imagine that? This brother was six foot seven, and this young girl was five foot one. And on that day as they got married, I know, right? Sometimes it's worth waiting for. And on that day when they got married, I was a member, or I was actually in the congregation. And I was sitting next to a person that leaned over to me and said, did you know that they saved their first kiss for today? I was like, what? I go, are you kidding me in this world that we live in today? That, That seems almost prudish, doesn't it? But yet I was amazed to see a young couple that were good looking, that were saving themselves for the Lord. I thought it was really honorable that they decided to save their first kiss. What was so amazing is this brother was holding her hands, six foot seven, standing there, right? And he's holding her hands, this beautiful girl in this white dress as she's standing in front of him. And when the pastor stood back and he said, now you may kiss your bride, it had a completely different meaning for me. And as I was sitting there in my own life and my own history and the choices that I made and living with those consequences, and I praise God that I'm still having the opportunity to be alive when many of my friends are dead. But as I was sitting there in that congregation, I realized the power of those words. And this brother, as he's holding onto her hands, he, he holds her hands, and then what he does is he plants his foot behind him because you know what? He's ready to lay one on her, and he has permission to do so. He respected her. He didn't take something that didn't belong to him. He treated her like a princess, and as he treated her like a princess, he won her confidence. She knew that she could trust him, not only with her body, but also with her mind. And as he stood there and he planted his foot back, he pulled her in and he planted one on her. And as he was pulling her in and he planted one on her, her body started to sway a little bit. She got really faint. Her face turned beet red. She looked at the congregation. Did they really witness that? And you know what? She showed him that she was worth waiting for. She showed him that she really was a princess. And that she was willing to wait until that moment. And so that night, on their wedding night, they had the right to experience what full-blown intimacy is all about without the history of anybody else, the opportunity to learn how to be perfect lovers for each other, without the history and also the generational curse that gets passed on to future generations, as I talked about a little bit last night. Ellen White goes on in that quote, and she says, But the gifts of Jesus are always fresh and new. The feast that he provides for the soul never fails to give satisfaction and joy. 
Each new gift increases the capacity of the receiver to appreciate and enjoy the blessings of the Lord because he gives grace for grace. There can be no failure of supply if you abide in him. The fact that you receive a rich gift today is the promise of a richer gift tomorrow. And you know what? You have the right to hold God accountable for that gift. And so my question for you, you have an opportunity now to make decisions, I think, with a little bit more information than what I had when I was a young person. And so my question for you is, even at 62 years old, as I stand in front of you, I'm finally willing to allow God to write my love story. And I just want to ask you, especially for those who have already made a commitment to Jesus Christ, if it's your desire, no matter what your past is, no matter what you've done, no matter what the addictions are that you're dealing with, if you want Jesus to write your love story, if you want these promises to be your promises, if you want your world to be different, then I want to invite you to just stand with me. It's not a corporate call, but if the Holy Spirit has touched your heart, if this is something that you want to make a commitment today, by standing, you're basically letting God know that, hey, this is what I want. Lord, I'm holding you accountable. You're going to have to hold me together. It may not be easy to break the addictions and the drives, but by standing up, you're at least saying, hey, Lord, I'm ready to receive everything that you have for me. Let's pray. Father, it's a very serious thing as these young people are standing. And I can't bless them, Lord. I can't give them anything, but you promise that you've already given it to them. You've already provided it by dying on the cross and living a perfect world that no matter what we've been through, no matter what we've experienced, no matter how we've um, compromised, that, Lord, that you can repair us and you can restore us. And, Lord, if you can make me as white as snow, you can certainly do that for these young men and young women as well. Lord, I pray that as they commit their ways to you, that, Lord, that you'll honor them as they honor you. And, Lord, it's not going to be easy, and it may not be perfect. But thank you, Lord, that you have provided a way for us. You provided a safety net that if we need it, you are always there. And I pray, Father, that when you come to take us home, that I will be able to see these young people there as well. And I'll be able to see their husbands and their wives and their families. And we will praise you for an eternity, Lord, for how you've guided us, protected us, and loved us till that moment. And in Jesus' name I pray and thank you. Amen. Thank you.